Section 35 of the American Book of the Dog. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona. The American Book of the Dog. G. O. Shields, Editor. Section 35 The Old English Sheepdog by William Wade Nothing is more promising for the future position of dogs of actual usefulness than the recent revival of interest in this breed. They are not handsome dogs by any means, and that such uncomprisingly ugly customers are becoming fashionable demonstrates that the real value for practical purposes is being recognized. They are one of the oldest of breeds, and certainly without a superior in value as farm working dogs, yet they were so neglected for many years that the breed was almost lost. That they are a very old breed is shown by references to them by early English writers. G. R. Jesse quotes from The Passionate Pilgrim. My curtailed dog that want to have played plays not at all, but seems afraid. And from Merry Wives of Windsor, Hope is a curtailed dog in some affairs. In Drayton Tenth Ecologue, these exquisite lines occur. He called his dog that sometimes had the praise Whitefoot, well known to all that keep the plain, that many a wolf had worried in his days a better cur there never followed Swain, which, though as he his master's sorrows knew, wagged his cut tail his wretched plight to rue. Poor cur, quoth he, and him therewith did stroke, Go to our coat, and there thyself repose. Thou with thine age my heart with sorrow broke. Be gone ere death my restless eyes do close. The time is come thou must thy master leave, whom this vile world shall nevermore deceive. These lines were written about the year 1600, and show that at that time dogs with short or cut tails were well known. In Marriott's Mr. Shipman, Easy, written about 1835, bobtails are introduced as a factor in the naming of that distinguished hero. Mrs. Easy wishes to call the boy after Mr. Easy, Nicodemus, but Papa objects. As there will be two Nicks, they will naturally call my boy Young Nick, and of course I shall be styled Old Nick, which will be diabolical. Then when Mrs. Easy selects Robert, Mr. Easy interposes. I cannot bear even the supposition, my dear. You forget that in the country in which you are residing, the downs are covered with sheep. I will appeal to any farmer in the country if 99 shepherd's dogs out of 100 
are not called Bob. Now observe your child is out of doors, somewhere in the fields or plantations you want, and you call him. Instead of your child, what do you find? Why, a dozen curs, at least, who come running up to you and all answering to the name of Bob, and wagging their stumps of tails. Marriott was a close observer of dogs, mentioning many breeds, and always associating them with their own peculiarities and vocations. How the Scotch Collie came to supplant the original English sheepdog is well described by Mr. F. Freeman Lloyd in his admirable monograph on bobtails, originally published in the columns of Turf, Field, and Farm, and by that paper published in very handsome pamphlet form. To this I would refer all inquirers for more minute particulars as to bobtails, merely confining myself to general statements that Mr. Lloyd seems to have somewhat overlooked. As to the appearance of bobtails, it may be said they average about the same as a collie in size, being generally much more cobby in build, with immense power in their hindquarters and not infrequently higher behind than at the shoulder. The head should be somewhat pointed, but nothing like that of the collie in either length or narrowness. The ears should be small, set on fairly high, and easily raised. There are two varieties of coats, the single and the double, which perhaps might be better defined as the short and the very heavy ones. Fashion or the weight of authority undoubtedly has gone for the very profuse double coat, although it is admitted that the other type is equally characteristic of the old breed. The heavily coated legs clear down to the feet and the densely coated face are also correct type. But although the authorities have so decreed, I must dissent most strongly from the desirability of either characteristic. The densely coated legs cannot but collect mud, snow, and slush and seriously impede the dog in his work. Any shepherd will tell you that the same holds good with sheep, that those with heavily wooled legs clear down to their feet tire much more quickly than the cleaner-legged ones. The useless hair of the face can only collect the ice and snow of a winter storm to distract the dog's vision. The absence of tail is the special characteristic of this breed and in the best bred specimens it is not a stump or a short tail but absolutely no tail at all the extremity of the spine being free from any lump or vestige of a tail half or even whole tails are not at all uncommon even in well-bred litters but this is to be attributed to a cross of foreign blood at some period and these long-tailed puppies mated with others naturally long-tailed will throw short-tailed or tailless puppies. I know a dog, the produce of litter brother and sister, both naturally long-tailed, who is bob-tailed naturally, and never got a full-tailed pup. 
although tried with mongrels with full tails, black and tan terriers, etc. The common supposition is that this short tail is a relic of the days when dogs with shortened tails were exempt from taxation, but this is clearly inadmissible. Cropping the ears of terriers and boarhounds, docking the tails of spaniels, fox terriers, etc., and shaving the coats of poodles has been practiced from time immemorial. Yet no change in the natural conformation of either breed has been the result. The cats of the Isle of Man are naturally tailless, and so must the bobtailed dog have originally been. It is for practical work that the bobtailed dog stands unequaled. Apparently his uncompromisingly ugly looks have saved him from being a victim to the pranks of fancy, and having no use but use, he has naturally been bred for use alone. It would be but natural that the owner of a good working bitch should select a good working dog as her mate, and thus the instinct of work has been kept alive in the breed, and in fact stimulated to the highest possible degree. Then the breed has been more used around households than the collie. In Scotland, sheep farming has been carried on, lands remote from habitations, and the shepherd and his dog were often separated from human associations for a considerable time. Thus the collie is less a household dog, hence his shy and suspicious nature, while the bobtail being employed to herd, drive, and watch stock, to guard his master's premises, drive trespassing stock away, and being in general the friend and associate of his master's family, has developed that charming disposition makes him by far the best companion among dogs and has stimulated his wits under the incentive of constant praise and affection. No dog can have a stronger instinctive disposition for work than the bobtail, and none can do his work with less training. Queen Vic, at six months old, would bring up the cows to be milked half a dozen times a day, being too impatient to work to wait for the proper time. When the mare is plowing, Vic keeps a sharp watch on the colt and will not let it stray a dozen yards from the mare's side. Dame Bruin, at nine months old, never having been worked on sheep, met a bunch of lambs stuck where a small stream crossed the road. Without an order from her master, the lambs did not belong to him. She tried to force them across, and failing, grabbed one and tugged it over. Dropping it, she served another in the same way. Agricola had not seen stock for a year, other than horses on the streets of Boston. Yet the second day he was on a farm near here, he took a walk with his master, and on seeing a dozen cows turned out of a field half mile from home, took charge of them without a word of instruction, taking them straight home without any assistance. 
Bob stopped fights between rams and drove the hogs away from the corn thrown down to the chickens, entirely on his own notion. And so I might go on ad infinitum. No dog is possessed of higher courage than the bobtail, and none is less quarrelsome. They go their way molesting no dog and tolerating meddling from nothing that wears hair. Agricola bristled up as quickly at my mastiff balder as he would at the merest cur. When a bobtail fights, it is not for fun. It is serious business. And the business is to kill the other dog in the shortest possible time. With their powerful jaws and strong teeth, they must be heavily overmatched if they do not come off victorious. The picture of Gwen shows the crack specimen of the English show benches and certainly shows a capitally strong, cobby, well-made animal, while the one copied from Stonehenge is the best illustration of a Bopdale in action that can be imagined, showing the immensely powerful hindquarters, the shaggy coat, and the peculiar fashion of running with the forepart of the body very low down, or, as it is sometimes described, running on the breastbone. This picture looks as though the dog were an inch or two higher behind than at the shoulder. Yet, if carefully scaled, it will be found that the dog is almost exactly level on the back. Although an English breed, the bobtail is peculiarly fitted for the needs of American stockmen. The collie is rather more of a herder than a driver, and in herding, speed is a matter of prime necessity, while the bobtail is more of a driver, a work in which patience and deliberation is the main point. Thus, although as fast a dog as any, barring hounds, the bobtail is a much slower, quieter driver, much less apt to hurry stock, and in general more deliberate in his work. Any stockman will recognize the value of this trait when the dog is entrusted with driving cattle or sheep in our intensely hot summers, where so much mischief can be done by overheating the stock. One thing which should always be borne in mind is constantly overlooked in use of sheepdogs. That is, that a dog is but a dog after all. Great may be his instinctive knowledge, and wonderful are the many manifestations of wisdom in dogs. But after all, there is a point they cannot pass. Now, to apply to sheepdogs some of the principles of ordinary good judgment, don't expect that a dog can be used for the most diverse purposes and yet be perfect in all. You could not expect that a man just through with a fight for life with a vicious tramp would be in a proper frame of mind to lead a prayer meeting. St. Vincent de Paul himself would be but human in such a case. Therefore, do not expect the dog you use to chase swine out of your yard where battles royal between the dog and vicious old sows are a matter of course, to be taken at once and set to drive a bunch of choice sheep. He cannot dismiss at once from his remembrance of the effects of his battle with the sow. 
So if your dog is used to chase and kill rabbits, groundhogs, play, fetch, and carry, etc., he will not be fully up to the mark for handling a lot of cows heavy with calf. The same dog can and will do both classes of work or play, but you must not expect him to go directly from one to the other and to be perfect at both. I would not be understood to mean deprecation of the collie as compared with the bobtail. Each has his own characteristics and each his peculiar merits and demerits. And the lovely and useful collie can well spare his unhandsome but invaluable compeer his due need of praise. The rudiments of training sheepdogs are simple. The fine points need a master's hand, and no instructions can fully supply the knack or really genius required. First, you should breed your worker. See to it that the parents of your puppy were workers. That is half the battle. Then make your puppy fond of you. Secure his entire confidence and affection. Never speak a cross word to him. If he needs reproof, administer it in kind and warning tones, for such are much more effectual than the blustering savage howls some breakers think is indispensable. Teach the dog to lie down at the word, the initial step being to gently press him to the ground with the hand, with the word down. Now move away from the dog, and if he rises, return and repeat the lesson. After he will keep his position when you have gone some distance from him, take him out with sheep and make him lie down. Then go around the flock with a pan of salt, gathering the sheep until they are between you and the dog, and then call the latter. If he is the right kind, a few lessons will enable him to comprehend what you desire him to do and by waving either hand he will soon understand which side of the flock you wish him to pass by. This is the foundation of training, and once acquired the rest of the dog's education is comparatively simple matter. Remember that it is education you want your dog to have, not the ability to perform certain tricks at the command of his master, for it is not what a sheep dog does at command that gives him great value. It is what he knows should be done without urging. The above directions on training are simply a condensation of the admirable paper prepared by Mr. S. M. Cleaver of East Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. They are, however, sufficient to qualify any good dog handler with the faculty of teaching dogs to train a sheepdog to any work that can be, be required of him, and without dog knack, nobody should attempt the work. Remember that each lesson must be thoroughly learned before the next is essayed, and always praise the dog when he does anything well. Above all things, never punish a dog except for doing what he knows is wrong. The essentials for rearing puppies whatever be the breed, are exceedingly few and simple. In a general way, we may say, if one studies nature, 
profits by her teachings and applies her principles, he will meet all the requirements. But this is scarcely definite enough, and we will go a little deeper into the subject. When a bitch is about to whelp, the fact is very evident in her manner. She busies herself with her bedding, pawing over her straw, placing and replacing the same. When these manifestations appear, it may be assumed that whelping is likely to occur within 24 hours. It is always best that a bitch at such an important time be in quarters to which she has been accustomed. She is always more or less uneasy for a time if a comparative stranger to her surroundings. Yet she should be in a quiet place, safe from intrusion from all but her master or mistress. This matter of seclusion is so important that it should be one of the first considerations and she must be guarded against accidental blows or crushes. In cold weather, the room in which a bitch is whelping should always be provided with plenty of soft, dry bedding and should be artificially heated. The temperature therein should not fall below 60 degrees Fahrenheit in the first week, and it had best been kept up to 70 degrees Fahrenheit during the first 24 hours at least. The reason for this is obvious. The puppies are drenched with the amniotic fluid when they come into the world, and the dam keeps them for a time more or less wet by frequent licking with her tongue. Hence it will be seen that for them to become chilled would be easy, and a chill to a young puppy means danger. Protection against cold is then one of the first essentials. Another equally important is that the puppies should nurse soon after birth. If strong and hardy, they will seek the breast of their own accord, but if weakly, they will need assistance. Any puppy which does not nurse voluntarily must be held to the breast and encouraged to suck within two or three hours after birth. This is essential and is very often neglected, and the fault is largely accountable for the great mortality among puppies. Once a puppy nurses well, it can safely be left to the mother, and the let-alone treatment is the best, coddling being most mischievous. A bitch should nurse her puppies just as long as she and they do well. Probably between the third and fourth week their gain will be less rapid, and the circumstance may be held as evidence that the dam needs assistance and that feeding the puppies artificially should be commenced. The first food should be cow's milk, diluted with two parts water and slightly sweetened with a little cane sugar. One such feeding a day is enough for the first week. During the second, two feedings at least will be needed, and the following week, three. After weaning, four meals a day up to the fifth or sixth month are needed. The milk at first, as already stated, should be diluted with two parts water. How rapidly to lessen the dilution is a matter of experience. No fixed rule can be established. All depends upon how the food acts. Probably in the early part of the second week, half milk and half water will be suitable. In the latter part, very likely the milk can be given without dilution. 
the puppy's discharges should be watched, for they give evidence as to whether or not the food is too rich. As early as the sixth week, puppies should begin to have meat broths, given very sparingly at first, however. Gradually, a more generous diet should be allowed. To secure growth and development, the first essential is abundant food, and it should be largely of meat. Scarcely less important are decent cleanliness and free exercise. After a puppy is once accustomed to solid food, the matter of feeding becomes simple. All the provoking minutia of exact quantities, particular qualities, and fixed periods in the matter of food and feeding are of little moment. If a young dog has sufficient exercise, there is no danger of his being overfed. It is with dogs as with men. Give them enough muscular work to do, and no amount of food which they can eat will be likely to hurt them. Dogs should have bones given them at frequent intervals, but of course small bones should be kept from puppies, for they might be swallowed whole and produce serious trouble or if broken, the sharp points would be likely to play the mischief with the internal arrangements. Where puppies must be reared in crowded kennels with the scantiest exercise, I cannot suggest any course of procedure. The conditions are so unnatural, justice can scarcely be done them. Worms are the principal cause of puppy mortality. Ashmont, in another part of this book, gives full and complete directions for treating animals afflicted with them, but a pound of prevention, etc. About a week before a bitch is due to whelp, she should be dosed for worms, should be shut up in her kennel on abundant bedding until she has thoroughly evacuated. The bedding should then be carefully removed and burned, and the kennel well washed and cleansed with some insecticide, boiling hot water, carbolic acid solution, sulfate of soda solution, etc. Then wash the bitch carefully all over so that every knit sticking to her coat may be removed or destroyed, even taking care that the water used is accounted for. Puppies nosing and rooting around in search of the tit are likely to get into their mouths any knits that may be attached to the dam's hair and a full crop of worms may be the result. I have thought that the eggs of worms are like the old saying as to certain tough cases in weeds. Burn them and be careful what you do with the ashes. If a dog is fed onions and turnips pretty regularly, he is not likely to be troubled with worms. I do not know whether these vegetables are vermifuges, strictly speaking, but I have often noted worms being passed by dogs after being fed these articles of diet, and I know it is the case with mankind, which brings me to the point that a dog is so much like a man in disease that it is a pretty safe rule to do about the same for a dog as would be the right thing for a man. It is also a safe rule in giving medicine to a large dog, Mastiff, St. Bernard, or Newfoundland, to give the same amount as would be given to a human subject of the same weight. Mr. G. W. Moore made some very sensible suggestions in Forest and Stream some time since 
as to care of dogs at and after dog shows, and advises thorough washing of an animal after returning from a show, that no contagium may remain attached to its coat and thus infect its kennel companions. You should be exceedingly careful about approaching a bitch just after whelping. It makes no difference whether her usual disposition is amiable or the reverse. A bitch, peculiarly gentle at other times, may be extremely savage when she has young puppies, and I have known bad-tempered bitches who were very indifferent about their puppies. Therefore, until this point is thoroughly determined by experience, use particular care to always approach the new mother with circumspection. Do not bolt into where she is suddenly, but go quietly. Speak to her kindly. Prepare her for your coming before she sees you. And when you come to her, first devote your attentions to her, not appearing to notice her puppies. And after she allows you to fondle her, you may handle her puppies with care, but in all cases disturb her as little as possible, and do not visit her for mere curiosity. See that she is comfortable, and let her alone. Take particular care that other dogs do not approach her. She has objects of tender care under her charge, and will fight for them to the death. As a matter of prime necessity, every dog lover should provide himself with Ashmont's Book on Dog Diseases. There are many works on canine disease and management, but nothing approaches Ashmont. It is so peculiarly simple and plain in description that by consulting it, a layman can recognize what is the trouble with his dog in a majority of cases, and its directions are so clear that the danger of making a mistake is reduced to a minimum. But as the layman will sometimes be at a loss to determine from the symptoms what the trouble is, he should call on his family physician. For instance, the non-professional will not be able to determine from the breathing of the animal whether it has catarrh, pneumonia, or distemper. The physician can determine whether it be either of the former, thus reducing the elements in doubt to narrow limits. If your physician is a snob, he may be affronted by being asked to examine a dumb animal. But if he is a man of standing, he will do it for you with pleasure. One of the most distinguished surgeons in America once operated on a puppy for me, opening a deep-seated abscess with as much care and skill as though the President of the United States were his patient. The late Dr. E. Dyer, one of our most distinguished oculists and a most thorough surgeon and physician, who would not go out of his specialty for a man, would cut his office hours short to attend his friend's dog in an urgent case. What such men are willing to do ought not to be objectionable to the man of lesser fame. As a rule, the veterinarian knows little of canine diseases, as the symptoms and diseases of dogs approach much more clearly those of the human subject than they do of horses, cattle, etc. Without special training in canine diseases, the veterinarian is not well prepared to treat them as is the regular physician. It must be remembered, however, that when you avail yourself of the kind assistance of your physician, you must not insist on paying for it. That terra incognita to the layman 
professional etiquette has among its manifold unwritten laws one against receiving pay for treatment of dumb animals. I have jotted down the foregoing as that which experience has taught a layman in a somewhat lengthy course of dog raising, but distrusting my expert knowledge and fearing that I might have made some statement that might bring down on me the wrath of the faculty, I have submitted it to a distinguished physician who pronounces it okay. End of section 35. Recording by Tom Mack, Tucson, Arizona.